Hello and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Jason Knight, and on each episode of this podcast, I'll be having inspiring conversations with fantastic people in and around product management. If that sounds like your kind of crowd, why not join the party at onenightinproduct.com, where you can find interviews with thought leaders and practitioners in and around product management, binge the back catalogue, subscribe on your favourite podcast app, or share with your friends. And if you spot that donate link up top, well, hey, podcast hosting ain't free, and your contribution will help keep food in my kids' mouths for another week. On tonight's episode, we talk about managers. Some of us have been managers, all of us have had them, but how many of us have stopped to think and asked a question, why are there so many bad managers, and how come some seem to be getting worse? We dig deep into what a good manager looks like, how we might measure managerial effectiveness, and whether good management is a teachable skill or something you're born with. We also reflect on my guest's time in the military, why it's not all as sir, yes sir as the movies tell us, and what tech companies might learn about empowered decision making, and commander's intent. For all this and much more, please join us on One Night in Product. So my guest tonight is Russ Laraway. Russ is a former hay baler turned marine commander turned titan of big tech who says one of his pet peeves is how people refer to all of their peeves as their pet peeves. Russ moved from the Marines to leadership roles at Google, Twitter and Qualtrics, finding time in between to help people care deeply and challenge directly by setting up Radical Candor LLC with his former boss and my former podcast guest Kim Scott. Russ has now turned his attention to solving his own legitimately pet peeve, the fact that managers are failing and no one's helping. He's doing his best to change that with his new book, When They Win, You Win, How Being a Great Manager is Easier Than You Think. Now I'm going to say that sounds fantastic, but I'm not sure he's had some of the managers I've had. Hi Russ, how are you tonight? Hey, what's up, Jason? That was a that was an excellent introduction. Thank you very much. No problem. So first things first, the book When They Win You Win. It's been out for a couple of weeks now. Yeah. Been roaring up the Amazon charts. I've seen some kind words being spoken about it on the socials and obviously some nice five star reviews and stuff like that. But as far as you're concerned and in your opinion, how's the book going down so far? Yeah, I think so I'd say so far so good. This industry, you know, the book industry doesn't exactly get their data uh, speedily, uh, I would say. So I, I do fly a little bit blind on sales. Uh, even even any data I get is actually, I mean, I just got some numbers today that was like a week old. So yeah, but the reception's been really strong, you know. And a funny thing, I'd I'd, I'd gotten a, a review from some some person who I think works at like Publisher Weekly. And it it was like a very neutral review, but the person had done so little, had put so little effort into the review. In the middle of the review, they referred to me as Matthews. <laughs> oh, there you go. Yeah, my last name's not Matthews. My middle name's not Matthews. <laughs> I have a cousin named Matthew, but but not Matthews. And anyway, th- it bothered me a little because it was really the first review that I'd seen. But it was also written by somebody who doesn't manage people. And so, what's been happening in the first two weeks we've been out? Is that real managers with real teams are saying, "Yo, this book is really, really helpful," and so that that's kind of what I'm after. I've always envisioned it in someone's back pocket. They're folding over, they're dog earing, they're underlining, they're making notes in the margin, they're highlighting. I've always envisioned it as sort of your your go to handbook that you have for for leading your teams. And so that reception so far, Jason's been really, really great. No, that sounds really good, and I'm going to avoid the temptation to try and fold mine since it's electronic. But I get the point. It's good to be able to do that sort of thing. And if you get that Samsung, uh, that Samsung phone, oh, uh, there you go. Yeah, yeah, you could 
sort of semi-dog-eared, I guess, down the middle. But on the book's website, you say, we don't need another person's opinion about what it means to be a great manager. Now, at the risk of being provocative, why do we need a book that contains your opinion about what it means to be a great manager? Because, you know, you're a person too, right? Yeah, yeah. Actually, we don't. We don't need a book that contains my opinion. Oh, there you go. And in fact, if this book were about my opinion, uh, I wouldn't have written it. So look, I mean, I don't want to diss my experience. I've been managing people for 28 years. You know, you mentioned the Marines. I've been at Google, Twitter. At most, you know, the, the publisher wrote the thing on, on Amazon and Barnes and Noble that says legendary Silicon Valley manager. I don't know about all that, but, you know, I mean, the reality is I've had a pretty good run as a manager. I think most people, we've gotten good stuff done and I think people have been happy working with me, right? Yeah. So that's been okay. But that doesn't entitle me to be particularly prescriptive about how to be a good manager. It's stuff that worked for me. And what I realized along the way is that far too much of this leadership stuff is about, uh, oh, it's, it's what works for me. Here's what works for me and my style. And, and leadership's more important than management. And I'm more of a leader, less of a manager. And it's all <laughs> nonsense. So the book, that, you know, the book that I wrote is a book that discovered a set of behaviors uh, leadership behaviors that when practiced, measurably and predictably lead to better engagement or work happiness, if you will, and better business results. So it's not, it's not just, it's not like crack the whip and get results. That's not the full equation. It's not, <laughs> hey, I'm winning a popularity contest. Everybody's happy and engaged. That's not the full equation. The full equation is set of leadership behaviors that measurably and predictably lead to better engagement, better results. And so it's not my opinion, actually. It's, it's actually pretty well detailed, data-driven approach to the behaviors that actually work. So how's that? No, that sounds, uh, that sounds pretty good. And I want to talk a bit about the data-driven stuff in a minute. But I guess before that, I want to ask just briefly, like you talk a lot about the approach and what that enables and how you can lead to better engaged and more effective teams. But obviously, someone needs to read it to do that. So is this really aimed at new managers? Is it, is it aimed at experienced managers who've maybe gone awry? Is it aimed at people that are trying to get into management but haven't got there yet? Like, Who's your sweet spot target yeah. reader of that book? Yeah. Primary audience is managers. And I'll, you broke it down perfectly. And I'll, I'll give you the priority order there. Secondary audience is actually HR people. Right. And in fact, I, I really struggled. I had to choose. Or, you know, while I was editing, <laughs> I kind of had to, you know, the publisher and everybody made me choose. And we ended up settling on writing for managers as the primary audience with a little bit here and there for HR, leadership development, people analytics types. The, in terms of the managers, you know, by a long shot, the book I, I think will be most valuable if, you, if you're new or you're mid-career. You know, aspiring managers will get a ton of value out of it. One of, in fact, one of my reviews on Amazon is written by an aspiring manager, which I found really interesting. But, but there's one thing. I, I do a little bit in the book uh, about senior managers who... Yeah, you know, a lot of times senior managers think they don't need this stuff. They're uh, they. It's like they handed a, a birds and bees pamphlet off to their child in like middle school. So you're 13 <laughs> now. You need to know how this works. Here's the pamphlet. You know, I don't think senior people should be doing that with this book. Senior people do, Jason. Of course, tend to be more experienced, a little more sophisticated, right? But because their blast radius or their leverage is so enormous, for better or for worse, smaller mistakes are actually. Uh, become very large. You know, the larger the organization you have, yeah. the more those mistakes blast. So, I did a solid two pages in here on why senior people should read it, and it's this simple: leadership by example ne uh, never goes out of style. And how can you possibly lead by example if you don't know deeply the example you're supposed to set? And again, like 
I give you some grace if this was my opinion. You know, go ahead, Nick. You can ignore me. All I am is a fellow senior manager. But this isn't my opinion. You know, we developed the evidence that suggests these are the right behaviors. And it doesn't matter if you're leading other C-level or vice presidents. These are still the right behaviors. And, and our math, by the way, holds up that way. Some of the effects are a little more muted, but the effects are there nonetheless. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that leading by example is something that you could probably argue that we need a lot more of just in general from you know, throughout any part of any industry, like just this ability to live and breathe the values that you claim to, you know, rather than just paying lip service to them. But I'm going to assume that having written a book about this and you've kind of touched on it yourself, like whether we believe that you were the best boss or not, but you know, you've probably been a pretty good boss in your time to have even had the background to even try and write this book. But you obviously didn't have this book when you were becoming a good boss because you hadn't written it yet. So I have to ask then, given your background, what was it that helped you be a good boss in the first place? Yeah, more than anything else, Jason, it was um, actually the United States Marines. So yep. what it, you, know, you mentioned in the intro, Kim Scott, one of the things she said, and I, I think she was being a little hyperbolic. Uh, <laughs> one of the things she said, though, is everything she's learned about the care personally access, counterintuitively, she learned from her former US Marine direct report. Hmm. So the Marines actually take this notion of taking care of your people extremely seriously. And it's, it's, um, it's all encompassing. You know, I, I, there's a story, um, a story where I got a call once from the local Domino's pizza outside the base. And one of my privates, one of my very, very junior Marines had been bouncing checks to Domino's Pizza. And the manager calls me and he's like, hey, we got to, can we get this guy? You know, it's called Private Smith. Can we be Private Smith. I, and so I had to do two things. First, before I counseled Private Smith, I had to counsel the uh, Domino's Pizza manager, stop taking checks from Private Smith. You know, why don't you, it's like, <laughs> you're, like, you're not a victim here, buddy. But we went and I talked to Private Smith and this guy, he didn't realize, he thought because he had checks, he had money. Right. You know, and there's a pretty basic life skill that this guy didn't have. Now, that wasn't true of all the Marines, right? Of course. Like, I don't want to paint them, you know, this was just, a, but this was part of my job was to help teach this young Marine not how to shoot straight, not how to, you know, fire, do fire maneuver, but to literally like get involved in life skills yeah. with some of these Marines. And so all encompassing. And so, um, you know, we say you don't mess with a Marine's pay or their food or their mail, you know, uh, <laughs> like never do that. And so, there's all these, I, I mean, the, the, the guy who, the, the big Marine base in, in North Carolina, which is in the East Coast of the US, it's called Camp Lejeune. It's named after a guy named General John Lejeune. And John Lejeune described the relationship of officer to Marine as, forgive the gendering here, you know, it just used to be the case when he said it, but he said it's the relationship, he said it's that of father to son, teacher to student, right? Yeah. And we can say parent to child now, uh, you know, because it's pretty gender diverse in the, in the Marines now. So anyway, on and on. And so I would say that for most of my time as a, as a leader, I was actually really, really focused on more of the engagement part of this equation, right? Leader, you know, the, I, the core model of the book's 3ER, yep. which is the big three leadership behaviors, leads to better engagement, leads to better results. I would say I spiked for a lot of years on the E. And when I got to Google, I at least wasn't perceived as being focused enough on the R. Now, it turned out when you hire great people, if you sort of take care of them in a human way, they'll, take care, they'll drive the results that need to be driven, even if you yourself didn't do the best job in helping <laughs> articulate what those should be. And I'd say, you know, I wasn't even the best, the best manager when I first got to Google because I, I was heavy in the middle, uh, heavy in the engagement part and, and, and weaker on the results part. Yeah. But 
you know, sort of culturally, uh, these, this, you know, tech really taught me about there's no point in doing anything else unless we're driving for the result. There's literally not, the rest of it doesn't matter, doesn't exist. We're all there to drive, deliver an aligned result. And so, you know, ultimately it was over years, you know, decades, Jason, that, you know, I learned the full sort of the full model of what it takes to be a good manager. Yeah. And it's interesting, actually, this whole military thing, because obviously many non-military people, the only real exposure they get to the military is through films and through stories that they hear and stuff like that. And they maybe have this very authoritarian view of the military kind of full metal jacket style thing, because that's really the last film that I remember watching about it. But I, I've chatted to a couple of ex-military people who've really kind of bedded home this idea that actually it's not at all like that. And also there's this whole commander's intent idea that, you know, like basically once you're in the field, you've got a mission and you try and work out your best way to get there based on the talents in the team, which obviously is something which has transferred a lot into some of the tech thinking as well with the sort of OKRs and, and stuff like that, which obviously, yeah, it's a different world, but it feels like there's so much relevance in that sort of squad model, I guess, if, if that's even the right thing to yeah. call it. And, and the way that you just sort of set the direction give them the right coaching and then get out of the way. Is it, would you say that's fair? Yeah, it's really, it's really well said. Commander's intent's fascinating. That's, that's where a commander articulates the end state of the battlefield and very, very junior people yeah. are then empowered to make the decision. Because the first, the plan's gone. The second a bullet goes whizzing past your head, the plan's gone. So yeah. now these very junior people need to make decisions that help achieve the, the desired outcome that are generally not exactly what they stipulated in the plan. There's a story from World War II where a, a Marine sergeant who's, you know, probably 10 levels in the hierarchy lower than General Rommel, yep. famous tank commander, uh, the sergeant outmaneuvered General Rommel because the sergeant was empowered to act and Rommel needed permission from Adolf Hitler, who was somewhere else at a wedding, you know? <laughs> and so um, just to give you a feel, but by the way, along these lines of the movies, just, you know, we, we don't have to tell a lot of Kim Scott stories, but this one's amazing. She's the first person who interviewed me at Google. It was in the bowels of the Wharton School, which is where I got my business degree. And she really didn't want to hire me. She had <laughs> sort of a, she had a sort of a bias against military people. She, you know, she herself used to use the phrase pinko, fe- I'm a pinko feminist. Yeah. Wasn't interested in interviewing a Marine. Think, you know, and, um, but two of her direct reports insisted. Uh, they had a, they had an intern there who came from Stanford GSB. He'd been a Marine. He was doing a really good job. They're like, maybe we should think about this. And so she said, fine. And so they picked my resume off the pile. And she interviewed me. <laughs> I walk in. She's upset she's there for three reasons, Jason. Reason number one is since they didn't have any Wharton people, she had to come down from Boston. She was interviewing at Harvard where she went. She had to come to Philly, you know, which uh, was, t- I guess, tough. She w- that's number one. Number two, she was sick, had a big fever. And then number three, she's got to interview this Marine. <laughs> So I walk in and luckily by this point, I'd been exposed to a lot of bad interviewers. Uh, you know, I went through that process at school and they were just young people who had no idea how to do interviews. And I realized, oh, everybody's trying to find reasons to exclude you. That's, that's what interviewing really is. Yeah. And the military thing, I, I'd gotten a fair amount of unu- sort of unusual characterizations about that. So Kim says, I don't even sit down. And she says, what does a Marine know about being entrepreneurial? Which ostensibly means Google's looking for entrepreneurial. It's 2,500 people, but that's not... So, so stop it with the entrepreneurial, number one. <laughs> number two is, I knew immediately what this was. This was exclusion. And so I knew I had nothing to lose. And so I said, Kim, is it? I said, it sounds to me like everything you've learned about military leadership, you've learned from TV and movies. Do you mind if I take 
a shot at reframing you. Those are the exact words. And luck of the draw, this is her favorite thing on earth, right? Pushing back, challenging her, you know, kind of like saying, hold on a minute. And what she deeply wanted in the people on her team. Uh, and, and she created an incredible culture along those lines. And so it turns out it didn't matter too much what I said from that point on. She became my greatest <laughs> champion, you know, which again, all the story ultimately is really to her credit. She owns this story very well. So sort of to your point, yeah, a lot of people have this really flawed idea about it's, it's, the, it's the commander says jump and the Marines just say how high and, and that's it. And they don't think and, and it couldn't be, it just couldn't be further from the truth. It, no organization I've seen pushes decision making closest to the facts better than the military, not Google, not Twitter, not Qualtrics, none of them. The, 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 the US Marines do it better than anybody. There you go. I'll get my green t-shirt and sign up. But when it comes then to the leadership and management angle, and you know, obviously that's generally performed by managers, and you've touched on earlier how this leader versus manager debate's a bit tiresome. So let's maybe use those words interchangeably to try and get that into people's thought processes. But from your perspective, and obviously with regards to the book as well, but from your perspective, what is the core job of a manager? Yeah. 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 And first of all, I think it's important that the job everyone applies for is manager. Yeah. Right. You're not actually out there applying for the job leader. And sort of this point, I there's these, you know, there's these two mental models, right? There's the leader and the manager. And the lead uh, the manager, okay, that this guy, uh, he's wearing a short sleeve, a button-up shirt, pocket with some <laughs> pens in it. He's got a clip-on tie, thick rim glasses. He counts all the bottles on the assembly line. He's, you know, he's in a con- concrete walls around him. He's looking all the spreadsheets are justified. And uh, there's maybe a, a water stain on the drop ceiling, bad fluorescent lighting. And this guy is someone to be tolerated. Yeah. And yuck. But the leader, Jason, oh, she's, I mean, she's, <laughs> she's something to behold, man. She, she floats. Uh, she's out on the meadow on the hillside. She, she seemingly floats. She needs to do little more than whisper, follow me. And everybody lines <laughs> up behind her and, and, and off they go to achieve the impossible. And she's inspiring. <laughs> and these are useless mental models. They're clear in people's minds. I mean, I just described something. I think most people are like, yeah, that's how we think about it. And um, the reality is like, if you, if, you, if you think about this job, you have to be a little bit of both of those things, right? And maybe when you're a little more junior, you got to be a little more of the manager. Maybe when you're a little more senior, you got to be a little more of the leader. But you always have to be both. And so... There's a phrase, there's a the chapter one of the books called Restoring Dignity to the Office of the Manager because yeah. what's implied in those two mental models is the manager sucks, you know? <laughs> and so, uh, but the job is nonetheless manager. So, all the way back to your question, the core job. So, I, I had to think about this. One of my core premises of the book is actually, despite all the content coming out to help managers be better at their jobs, they're actually, they're at least not improving. And I think I'd defend that one quantitatively. They may be getting worse because they're confused. Yeah. They don't know what to latch onto. And what they do latch onto, they, they opt into based on bias or it already fits their worldview. They don't latch onto things because nobody does the work to say, this set of behaviors measurably and predictably is better engaged and better results. Anyway, if you're going to be that guy that makes that claim, that the more content we put out, the more confused managers get, you also need to be the guy who simplifies. <laughs> so the simplified job description for the manager that I came up with is one, deliver an aligned result, and two, enable the success of the people on your teams. And now success is both short-term and long-term. So short-term, being better at your job today, long-term, you know, sort of your long-term career aspirations. And I think we'll get there, but 
that's sort of a top-down view. The bottoms-up view is the big three, which was derived through research. They actually overlap perfectly, and we'll, we can, whenever you're ready, we can kind of, we can kind of head there. Oh yeah, no, we'll get there in a sec. But one thing that just sprung to mind when you were given that description of the managers is something I've reflected on before. I think I gave a talk on it a little while back about the transition from individual contributor to to manager and how that's generally a very ill-coached transition, like in the sense that people don't get a lot of support in actually how to do that properly. They kind of just get given a new, new like gold-rimmed name badge or something like that, and then they just... <laughs> yeah, new get, parking spot. Exactly. If they're lucky or like a key to the executive washroom, like in Robocop, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they're, given, they're given a team, they're, they're given no training, they're given no coaching. The only role model really is their own boss, who themselves probably got given a team with no training and no coaching and their boss and so forth and so forth. So you've got this kind of chain of mediocrity from the newest manager all the way up to the most senior manager in the organization. I guess a question from that would be like, why are companies so bad at developing the people that they do put into management? Yeah. Yeah. By the way, for, like sort of a core idea that underpins what you just said is that I think is really important for people to get their heads get right, uh, get their heads right on is the activities that make you successful as an individual contributor yeah. look nothing like the activities that make you successful as a manager. There might be some attributes, right? If you show a lot of initiative as an IC, right. showing initiative as a manager is helpful. If you're a good listener as an individual, you'd be a good listener. So, so attributes, but the activities, the things that technically define a job or activities, they are nothing alike. Yeah. And you know, in the book, I give two examples. One's the general contractor. Like, I don't care if he can swing a hammer. I don't care if he cuts straight. What I care about, can he deconflict 17 subs that, you know, can he give us good advice? Can he keep us on budget? Yeah. Or the, another example is the woman who conducts the symphony orchestra. She doesn't blow any air through a clarinet. She doesn't <laughs> pluck the harp. She doesn't hit the timpani. Her job is to get the best player in each seat, make sure they're all in tune, and then to, to put together and make sure everyone understands the composer's intentions and then, you know, deliver a beautiful symphony or concerto, right? Mm-hmm. This is the difference in a nutshell. Um, so why are companies so bad? Well, first at first, it's hard. And number one, but number two is there, there is a process to have great managers. And I'm telling you, Jason, it ain't easy. <laughs> and so the model that I use is I call it STACK. It's an acronym. And like we're going to stack up a bunch of great managers. S-T-A-C. So I left the K off. It's probably how you guys spell it in the UK, I bet. <laughs> anyway, so, so STACK. We're going to stack up a bunch of great managers. And STACK stands for Select, Teach, Assess, coach. So step number one, the first thing we do wrong, Jason, is what you just described. We take the best individual contributor and make them the manager. Or if you're in food services, we take the... Per- it's like, hey, you're still here? Okay, you're the manager. Like, <laughs> you know, because like the person with the most tenure, right? So we don't select based on leadership skill in the case of an experienced manager or leadership disposition in the case of a new manager. We select for nonsense. By, by the way, most companies, as I just mentioned, are absolutely terrible at selecting people in general. Yeah. There's zero consciousness about selecting for leadership disposition. So the first thing we do is we don't select well. We already have like the chessboard tilted against us, you know, or whatever, or the playing field tilted, uh, you know, against us. Then you have to, as you described, you have to teach the leadership standard. Now I'm going to argue that the selection and the teaching, they're based on the same leadership standard. Yeah. My opinion, it should be one that has the guts to say that it measurably and predictably leads to more engaged employees and better business results. But that's, a, you know, I'll take anything at this point as long as they're the same standard. <laughs> so that's teach. Now, here's the thing about teaching, training. What everybody knows intuitively is that when people go to training, 
a very small number of people are capable of a very small number of behavior changes based on that training. And so, and there's like, I, I actually, I actually covered a bit in the book. There's a bunch of research about the amount of training effort and money that is wasted because people leave and don't change. Yeah. And like better up is a company that exists literally because of this problem of wasted training. So anyway, well then how do you make training stick, right? You still have to do it, but it's wasted. Well, the next, the third step in stack is most important is assess. And so um, what we really invented at Qualtrics, it, it, we, we ended up naming it the manager effectiveness score. This is where we're asking employees if the managers are showing the behaviors that we've studied that lead to more engagement and better results. We're not doing it 360. Yeah. Your boss, the manager's boss gets plenty of room to evaluate the manager. The people that are doing the real work, the people that are being led, I want to know from the people being led how they believe they're being led. And I want it only from them. I don't want peers. I don't want the, I only want it from the, this is, I'm saying this and like you're nodding. And this is, this is actually one of the hardest things for companies because a lot of managers are hiding. Oh yeah. You you can hide from your boss, you cannot hide from your team. And something like this, the very first thing that happens is managers can no longer hide from their teams. Yeah. It instantly changes the leadership culture by the way. Every single manager is going to be held accountable by their team. This is by far the most leveraged of the three parts and I promise you if you don't do this one you're going to have a hard time making your managers great. Anyway, at the end coach there will always be gaps. Turns out when you write these questions as behavioral questions, employees will tell the truth, right? A lot of people think they, they'll lie. The, you know, these products often have confidentiality thresholds, so the manager doesn't know who's actually saying what. Yep. And so now there's a gap. The man, there's the standard and there's the gap. And the man, now we coach the managers to close the gaps. Their manager coaches them. I would sometimes coach the, the, the really bad ones. And look, <laughs> practically, just to give folks a feel, that process, select, teach, assess, coach. While I was the chief people officer at Qualtrics for four years, we added 500 managers under my watch. And while we added 500, they got measurably better. It would have been a coup if just the original 100 got measurably better. But by the time <laughs> I left, there were 600. And to have your managers measurably improve over four years while adding six times the number you started with, or, or five times the number you started with, something like that, is it's extraordinary. And so that select, teach, assess, coach... Most companies, you know, a decent company is probably doing the teach part. I got asked to consult for a, like a, one of the big three US auto companies. And, and these guys wanted to do that. They wanted to allow employees to assess the managers. And they were getting roadblocked by senior people at this automaker because probably those are the same people who are hiding from their teams yep. or the people who are inclined to kiss up and kick down. And uh, nobody wants that kind of accountability. It's hard. But I'll tell you, I'll tell you, you know who loves it, by the way, Jason, the, the managers at Qualtrics. Yep. They quite, and that's a growth, you have to have a growth mind. We never termed anybody because, you know, they were getting a bad manager effectiveness score. Like that's the fastest way to get your employees to stop telling the truth, by the way. All of a sudden, <laughs> you know, John gets a bad score and then John vanishes. <laughs> you know, eventually, eventually you have to move somebody maybe out of a job here and there. But, but overall, the goal was to coach people, get them better. And if you have a growth mindset, you view this as like the great, these are the people I serve. They're giving me the answers how to serve them better. Like, so, so it turns out most really conscientious, good managers, the people who really want to be good at the job, they love this. The people who don't want to be good at the job or who are really scared of growth, they often will push back and recoil at this idea of being assessed by their teams. So anyway, stack, select, teach, assess, coach with no K. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. But in the book, you say that 
employee engagement is the linchpin of the company's success. And you've talked a lot about the measurability of your approach and the quantitative proof that you can make a big difference. And you've just touched on it then as well, this idea that you measured those 500, 600 managers, it all got better. So that all sounds brilliant. And obviously, working for Qualtrics, a company I know reasonably well, I'm sure you've got a very specific thing in mind when you talk about this you talk about employee engagement as being the the metric is that is that the one metric that you track as kind of proof of the efficacy of the approach or have you got like this whole complicated dashboard of numbers and widgets that you would recommend people take a look at and all these different things that they can measure all at the same time yeah i'd say there's probably three three measurements uh that that really matter primary measurement of the employee experience should be employee engagement yep as you were touching on it's just really strongly correlated with enterprise results. Yep. And my, my point is that to sustainably get great results, you need an engaged team. Um, you might be able to skip it for a bit and get some results for any number of reasons. You know, Maybe you lead with fear. Maybe it's sort of a more of a wartime feeling versus a peacetime feeling. Right? You might be able to get away. But sustainable, you know, repeatable results, you have to, yeah, I'm, I believe quite firmly you have to lead through engagement. I, and I rattle off the, the third party stats in the book from places like Bain and Company, from Gallup, from the Royal Bank of Canada, you know, like yeah. all, all over the place. Engaged employees deliver better results. And I'm not even talking about attrition, I'm talking about quota and earnings per share and productivity and operating margin, like real business results. So engagement matters a ton. It turns out that a lot of employee engagement experts, um, th- this is one of those measurements where people don't like to set it as a target because by setting it as a target, you change the measurement. So when you can't set, a, let's say you can't because my you know, subject matter experts tell me I can't set goals around engagement because I'll change the measurement simply by the presence of a goal. Well, then what are the controllable input metrics? Well, by long shot, manager effectiveness, uh, what I just described. And, so I, and I list how to do that in the book. There's you know, but like the big three direction coaching career breaks down into 12 distinct behaviors. Uh, you ask your employees if your managers are demonstrating those behaviors, five-point scale, top two is good, bottom two boxes are bad, middle box neutral, and boom, now you're measuring manager effectiveness. Manager effectiveness is by a long shot the most important controllable input metric toward employee engagement. There's some other things that depending on the, the, you know, the research study or the outlet doing it, there's uh, other ideas that have some explanatory power like inclusions getting a lot of play these days and and inclusion does does correlate also the average resiliency of your employees actually has a big impact on how engaged they'll be um so nothing even to do with how well they're being led but to be really clear 70% of en- variance in engagement is explained by manager quality and by the way even whether someone feels included on a team is likely a function of how well the manager's doing I, we could we could kind of go there if you like but just you know it's almost impossible to escape the manager so gallup says the manager explains 70% of engagement that means in large data sets, you observe a positive variance from average in employee engagement. If you were to trace that back statistically, literally regress it, you will find that variance, 70% of that variance is explained by commensurate variance of manager quality, both positive and negative. So that's kind of the third-party stuff. In other words, everything you're doing is worth less than half of whatever you're doing to make your managers great. Everything else you're doing to try to change engagement is worth less than half. And even if you and I, Jason, want to arbitrarily discount that 70 to 50, just because even though we have no credentials whatsoever to do that, <laughs> but I know everyone, you know, people that listen to me say this, they're skeptical, fine. Well, that means everything else you're doing is worth, worth half and investing in your manager is worth half. So at Qualtrics, we've, we created an elasticity actually. So, and this first time it's ever existed, plus or minus two points of manager effectiveness. 
is worth plus or minus one point of employee engagement. And so that's wild. I mean, that doesn't sound like much, I think, to your average listener, but the fact that that exists at all yeah. is extraordinary. And so let's, let's change that real fast to 10 and 5. Plus or minus 10, and I'm doing that for a reason. Plus or minus 10 in manager effectiveness is worth plus or minus 5 in employee engagement. This is on average at scale, right? I can't guarantee a single manager of a five-person team, if they improve their manager effectiveness by 10 points, five points of engagement will follow. I cannot guarantee that. But at scale, I, I could, we saw it clear as a bell. By the way, measured 16 times while I was there, something like that. Well, here's the killer. What we also found is that plus five in employee engagement is worth plus 30 in quota attainment. Quota attainment. That's a lot. Name a more precious business <laughs> measurement, lifeblood <laughs> measurement than quota. It's a new business. you know. And, so, yep. and we also found plus five in engagement is worth plus five in contract renewal. And you know, that's a company whose contract renewal rates are already beyond world-class, like yeah. above, above well, its confidential number, but yeah. really, really high. And so finding five points was tough. So, so run it through. 3ER, the better you are at your manager effectiveness score, plus 10, you improve your managers by 10 points in a sales organization. Engagement should follow by about five points. And you should expect on average quota attainment of 30 points. Uh, in a customer success org, you, know, you look at contract renewal. By the way, we could go code checked in, we can go code quality, we can go products delivered. I don't care what they are. Anything we can measure, we can mix into that. And so those are the three measurements. It's the manager effectiveness scores, the controllable input, Engagement is a critical measurement, but not a target. And then what are the results, the measurable results? The reason I pick quota and contract renewal is because those, whether those were achieved or not, is not adjudicated by the fox in the hen house chief revenue officer. It's adjudicated by the CFO. (laughs) He doesn't give a crap what the CRO wants the answer to be. He's got like legal responsibility to say, no, this is what actually happened. Yeah. So those are very strong, you know, as close to an objective business measurement as you can get. So whatever your result is you're trying to drive, those are the three measurements that matter and 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 they kind of flow in that order. Manager effectiveness leads to better engagement, which leads to sustainably better results. Yeah, I think that's really fascinating as well. And obviously speaks to a lot of the work that you generally I would have expected you would have done at Qualtrics as well, given the type of company that it is. But this idea that any of this stuff, you know, all of the things that you've talked about, all the things you talk about in your book, I mean, they almost certainly would sound like good ideas to most people, at least notionally, like read the book, yeah, we should do some of this stuff. But actually, I think I, I like the way you said it, like drawing a line straight through to the center of the CFO's world. That's the thing that gets this stuff bought, right? That's the stuff that makes people want to use the approach because they can see very materially that it does have that impact. Because otherwise, you just run this risk of being seen as like a luxury approach, right? Yeah. Because it's so difficult to demonstrate any return on investment on what you're doing. So yeah, completely recommend if anyone's trying to do that sort of stuff, they do try and draw that line. Yeah. This, this by the way, just was a little bit of my motivation. I covered this on the... I, I did a recent episode with Kim on the Radical Candor podcast. Yep. A little bit of my motivation was I was on the phone with everybody that was interested in Radical Candor. You know, that book was that book's bestseller yep. two times over, you know. You know, we couldn't pick the phones up fast enough, but um, I would I would get frequently asked about ROI, and we didn't have a great answer. And I used to get and I I would kind of put it back on the customer. I, honestly, I was never totally comfortable with that, but that's kind of what we had to do because we didn't. You know, Kim tells this funny story about a VC asked about the ROI, and she you know she turned around and said to the venture capitalist, "The ROI is that your managers aren't a bunch of assholes." You know, kind of like. <laughs> That's how she answered it. And she said, maybe I was a little... That sounds like him. Yeah, it's exactly her. Yeah. <laughs> and so... But I wasn't really comfortable with that, right? And I knew I wasn't... I had no reason to believe I was going to write a 10 times over bestseller. And so I thought 
I needed to set the bar a little higher for myself. And so went out and sort of did this work that really is the ROI of good leadership. It's unquestionable. I mean, and then you know, the part part one of the book like defends this robustly. We're we're hitting the wave tops here. Yep. But part one of the book defends this robustly that that it is your managers who are holding the keys because here's here's the simple narrative insight that maybe most CFOs prefer the numbers, but the narrative insight is the only thing everybody has in common at work is that they want to be successful. Yeah. Right? That's it. It's the only thing. We don't, we're not there to date. We're not there to make friends. We're not there to socialize. Some of us are, all those things. But, <laughs> but the only thing we all have in common is we want to be successful. And so people just want to do great work and they want to be totally psyched while doing it. Right? So that's what we all want. It turns out that the manager is the single human being most likely to create the direct manager, no matter what level in the hierarchy you are, by the way. Your direct manager is the single person that is most likely to create or destroy those circumstances. Managers are holding the keys to whether people do great work and they're totally psyched while doing it, which is engagement and results. So that's sort of the narrative version. But it's really, really important to me to develop sort of an ROI perspective on this stuff. Um, it felt more an integrity to me. And that's, that's kind of a big reason why I say I would, if I, it was only my opinion, Jason, I would not have written the book. Oh, there you go. I'm sold. But the book maps out then a three-step plan to help make all that better. You've got the big three, the direction, coaching, and career model where you can go and make managers more effective. And you say you've broken it into these three areas that you kind of touched on it earlier to keep things simple so we don't confuse people with labyrinthine frameworks and unactionable stuff. But with regards to those three steps then, the direction, coaching, and career, is that like a all or nothing thing, or can you just go and pick and choose what you think you're not very good at? Yeah, I think I think there's room to prioritize. Um, but but I'd say a couple of things about why this book is different. For, first of all, is this notion that the leadership standard, the big three, direction, coaching, career. When I say it works, it's not my opinion. It's because this standard measurably and predictably leads to more engagement, better results. That's the first key. That's my most important differentiator for the book. Yep, I, I know for a fact that doesn't exist in another book. So that's number one. But there's two couple other things that are that are a little bit different. First is that this leadership approach is simple. You, and I'm glad you use that word. I say simple, but not easy. Like doing these things isn't always very easy. No, but there are going to be listeners to your podcast or you know that say direction coaching career. I already knew that. Um, which by the way, to me is a hallmark of a good book. When everyone's when you know you get like lots of people saying I already knew that, and or say <laughs> man I should have wrote that book. You know. That's that's actually usually means we we got something. But again, we've done the work to say these these three three things measurably and predictably lead, and it's simple, simple but not easy. And then last is, and and to getting back to your question, it is coherent. So the prob one of the big problems with the corpus of information on how to be a better manager is it is not coherent. It is unbelievably incoherent. It's not <laughs> contiguous. It doesn't hang together. It conflicts. With itself, it's too much, right? And so, the, the, and it is this system that I believe is not as leading to the fact that managers are not getting better at, at scale. A manager out there is probably getting better, of course, and and some somehow are miraculously getting worse. <laughs> but simple is a feature, not a bug. Yeah, simple but not easy, and it's coherent. So, so you're not going to escape if you want to do one part of the big three at first. You're not going to escape the other two. However, I do go into some detail in the book. I call it where to start. You know, at the end, toward, I think it's toward the epilogue. I write a bit for the HR people and I write a bit for the managers. Uh, it's, it might be just before the epilogue. And for the managers, I, I give them three places to start. 
So, you know, just to kind of get moving, because ultimately it's a 304 page book, right? Like ultimately, there's quite a bit of advice in there that's hard for any human being to abide by and instantly change, right? And so you got to start somewhere. But just realize if you start any place, you know, I give, I give a starting point in direction, a starting point in coaching and a starting point in career. And just realize you're, you're just not going to escape the big three. Actually, I, I think this is really important because I mentioned earlier, some of the problem with the corpus of information being about is the way people opt in. They opt into things they're already good at. Yeah. They opt into things that already fit their worldview. They don't want to put in the hard work of that other thing that seems really hard. And oh, I stink at that. And that's not a winning approach. No. Um, we got to go do all of these things to become good. And my proof is because this standard measurably and predictably leads to better engagement, better results. Yeah, it reminds me of whenever I try and pick up a long forgotten language that I used to know at school or something like that. And I immediately like try and find either like a really early foundational book to try and learn that and get really bored. Or I try and find a way too hard book and uh, you know, just don't make any progress at all. It feels like yeah, having somewhere that, some way to kind of zero in and just try and work out what you're good at. But yeah, I guess the counterpoint to that is if you just start at the beginning and kind of go through the stuff that you think you know, then you'll go past everything all the way up to the top and then you'll get better rather than assuming that you know some things and then missing some gaps that you actually never knew, but you just kind of glossed over in the past. Not sure if that's a perfect analogy, but you know, I like to pretty good. make myself sound yeah. clever. I and one thing, I, no, it sounds clever. It does. You, you at a minimum, <laughs> achieve sounding clever. I, I would just say, I'm thinking about this. I, I actually kind of believe in orienting folks toward their strengths. Yeah. You know, I, I work for Goodwater Capital now, and one of the magic partners, his name's Chiwa Chen, and he's a great guy. And he lives and breathes discovering your superpower. He he loves this, right? And and can't wait to orient you toward your superpower and watch you go. He's like a, it's a wonderful, kind human being that just loves to see people fly. And I buy into that. I like that a lot. And so sometimes when people hear me say, sorry, there's no escape in the full big three, what's missing for them is the behaviors in here are not particularly susceptible to you being inherently good or bad at them. Yeah. They're just behaviors that require practice. I, 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 really, I say early on, anybody can do this if they put in the right kind of work. And I really mean that. And I, I wrote that mostly for introverts because there's this horseshit belief that extroverts or people with charisma are better managers inherently. And they may be in, the, in day one. You, know, you show up to a team, you're kind of cool and funny and comfortable. The team will feel a little more settled. But like, I promise you, give it a week. And um, it's the person, whether they're the extrovert or the charisma person, or whether the introvert with like, no shred of charisma, it's the people who do the brushing and flossing work every day, and, every day, day in and day out to enable their team to be successful. Those are the good managers. And yeah. the extroverts don't have any greater advantage in that regard than the introverts do. Some of the best managers I've ever met, massive introverts. So anyway, so I'm pretty convinced anybody can become a great manager. And these behaviors aren't, in my opinion, susceptible to you being really good at it or really bad at it. And anyway, if you haven't done it or practiced it, I tell you how to do literally everything in here. And you just have to go practice and you'll become good at these. They're not, they're, they're addressable, they're accessible for, I think, I really, I really mean that for anybody. Yeah, I think that does sound amazing, but I am going to go and try that on some of my former worst managers that I've ever had and see if it can improve them as well, if I can still find them, probably get them on LinkedIn or something like that. But where can people find you after this then if they want to talk to you about the book, maybe get some of that training, talk about leadership in general, or maybe try and sell you on the benefits of some franchising opportunities? <laughs> <laughs> the, 
Yeah, well, all that, you know, all that's welcome. I'm I'm the easiest <laughs> guy on earth to find. I am personally on Twitter, I am personal on Instagram, I'm personal on Facebook, and I'm personal on LinkedIn. We are we are on at they when you win is on Twitter, at they when you win on Instagram, at when they win you win on Facebook. I couldn't get the same one there. <laughs> and so and then the book's available, it seems like everywhere. I mean, a friend of mine bought the last copy at LAX. Oh wow. A couple of weeks ago on his on his way to Riyadh. He's in the Marines still. And so, you know, so I guess you can get the book anywhere, um, you know, but you can get it online. There's audiobooks, as you know. Yep. There's a Kindle version, you know, all that. So I, I'm I am the easiest guy. And I'm and at the moment I'm hyper responsive on all these channels. Um because because of this, I am really grateful for these early adopters, you know. I am a skeptic on everything. Uh, Gretchen Rubin <laughs> questioner. I, I did her podcast recently and I'm a skeptic. And to get me to get a book, to lean in and go grab a book, it, you know, I need to be pretty convinced. And so these early adopters who are the exact opposite of me, who sort of jumped in with both feet and who are now telling <laughs> everyone they love it, I can't express my gratitude to those folks enough. And so, so as a result of that, I, I have at the moment, I can still handle it. I'm very, very responsive on on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook, and on LinkedIn. And so if folks want to get in touch. Oh, and by the way, on our website, when they win you if you have a business need that you think we can help with, or you literally just a form to fill out, go straight to Charmaine. She'll give you a call in like two seconds and the next thing you know, we're <laughs> we're rocking and rolling. So you, you, we're we're the easiest people on earth to find, Jason. We're we're so easy to find. I will go and find out all those details, link them into the show notes, and hopefully you'll get a few interested people heading in your direction. Thank you. Well that's been a fantastic chat. Obviously Really grateful we could find a time and chat a little bit about how we could all be better leaders or managers, whichever you want to call yourselves. Uh, hopefully we can stay in touch. But yeah, as for now, thanks for taking the time. Yeah. Can I take two final words? Of course. Thank you. One is, hey, you did a really nice job in this interview, and I'm going to be specific about why. Oh, thank you. Your preparation. It is clear that you didn't just read the book, but you, you studied it. And not that everyone needs to do that. That's not how a lot of people read. But if you're going to interview me on a podcast, I, you know, for it to be worth my time, we, I want to have a good conversation. And this was great. So thank you. Number two, just, just an idea for your listeners. I just want to go back to something I said. Uh, I, I, ostensibly, you have a bunch of managers in your audience. People want to do great work and they want to be totally psyched while doing it. The person most likely to create or destroy those circumstances is you, the manager. Don't stop looking to your left. Stop looking to your right. I'm not blaming you if it's going poorly, but I am endorsing you if it's going well. <laughs> you know, not Lots of managers have gaps and you do too, probably. But oh, absolutely. you are the one. It's not the CEO. It's not the company's vision. It's not the office space. It's you. Yeah. You own this and, um, and, and you can do it. And people just want to do great work and be totally psyched while doing it. You are the person most likely to create or destroy those circumstances. So now just go own it and make it happen. And I'm right here for you. And my goal is to make every manager measurably great. Um, and so ho- hopefully we can pull that off together. Cool? All right, here, here. As always, thanks for listening. I hope you found the episode inspiring and insightful. If you did, again, I can only encourage you to pop over to onenightinproduct.com, check out some of my other fantastic guests, sign up to the mailing list or subscribe on your favorite podcast app and make sure you share with your friends so you and they can never miss another episode again. I'll be back soon with another inspiring guest, but as for now, thanks and good night.